Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 231, Anglo-Saxon Economics and Money, with Professor Rory Naismith. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Candice, Kesey, and Nicole for signing up already. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different because it's an interview. It's also an interview on the road, and unfortunately, it involved a mic that it looks like TSA broke. So the sound quality is going to be a little less than what you're used to. I did the best I could to clean it up, but broken mics are broken mics. In addition, this was during our trip where I defended my PhD, and I had actually defended it about 24 hours before. And thanks to jet lag, we hadn't really slept. So I was probably about 36 hours awake by the time we were interviewing this poor professor. And you're going to hear this actually in how I end up asking questions. So I ended up kind of accidentally falling back into lawyer mode a couple times and well, deposing poor Professor Naismith. And he was very kind about it and didn't seem to mind all that much. But if my questions sound a little bit funky a couple times, that's because, uh, I was pretty punch drunk while this was all happening. So before we begin, why don't we set the scene for what this was like? Because it was actually kind of adorable. So Professor Naismith invited us up to his home in Cambridge that day. And when we got there, he invited us up to his sunny little kitchen. And we sat around his nice round little kitchen table and we had this conversation. Naismith is this very young, energetic guy. And I could tell whenever we hit on a question that interested him because he would lean forward and get really excited. There was this little glint in his eye that you can't quite hear in the microphone. His voice doesn't change, but you could really see it. He loves his subject and it was really fun talking to him. Yeah. And with that, let's get started. My name's Rory Naismith. I'm currently a lecturer in early medieval British history at King's College London. And before I started at King's, I did my BA, my undergrad, my master's and my PhD all in Cambridge. Uh, and then after that, I decided to take a flying leap into the dark and stay at Cambridge for my three successive postdoctoral positions here doing various early medieval things. Excellent. So what are you uh, currently specializing in? Well, I've worked on all sorts of things over, over the years, but at the moment I do a lot of work on early medieval money and economic structures, how those interface with political organization, institutions, society. What I really like is how all of these different things come together. It's very easy to get too abstract and think about economics as just, just numbers on a page or you know, they abstract ideas. I quite like keeping it grounded, keeping it personal, related to all the other things that are going on as well. So currently where we're at in the show is right when Alfred retook the kingdom at the Battle of Ethendon, right? Sure. And so we are already well into the muddied economy mm. period. And we've talked a great deal about uh, the food rent economy of the prior era, mm. but we haven't talked a bit uh, much about the transition from food rent mm. uh, to a more moneyed economy. So what yes. would that transition actually look like? Well... It would mean a few things. The, the key thing is that somebody's got to be telling the, the peasants, the people who are actually growing the food, that they're no longer just going to be handing over grain and honey and livestock and so forth. They've now got to produce cash as well. So you've got to have pressure coming in from the top. You've got to have somebody who wants to have that change happen. And this is why it's often associated with 
the growth of multiple relatively smaller landowners. It sounds a bit paradoxical, but the point is that since they've got less to work with, they need to push it harder to get more out of the people who are working under them. And this is something that that you can really see taking off in the era after Alfred, um, particularly in the 10th and then onwards into the 11th century. It's also worth stressing, this doesn't mean that food renders ever stop completely. They carry on well, in some rather exceptional cases, right down to modern times, you know, people famously having to pay eels and lampreys and stuff right. like that. But in the Anglo-Saxon period, you're, you're absolutely right that the balance is, is shifting. And the degree of that shift would vary a lot, depending on exactly when and where you were. There were probably some places in the time of Alfred which were mostly still working on a food rent basis rather than cash. When you're, say, in the 7th century, right, there's not a lot of currency. What currency is around is primarily being brought from the continent, right, during that period? Yeah, especially very early on, yes. Yeah. And then suddenly we have the introduction of coinage, and it starts somewhat small, correct? It does. It begins in the early years of the 7th century. The very earliest coin that was probably made in England is a gold piece that was found in Canterbury in the 19th century, along with various ones from Merovingian Gaul and other places. And this coin named Bishop Leudard, and he's referred to in Bede as the chaplain who came over with... Bertha, who was married to King Ethelbert of Kent. And so this places it very squarely around about the year 600. But that's a sort of flash in the pan. Things don't really take off on a larger scale for at least 20-odd years thereafter. It's very difficult to date or assign early Anglo-Saxon gold coins to a particular king or source because they virtually never have any legible inscriptions on them. So you talked about there would be a pressure that would be applied to the peasants. What would that look like? That's a very good question. Um, Well, the short answer is it's never actually made very explicit. My general expectation is what it would mean is is one of two things. One is that you'd, you'd call in the people from a particular estate to maybe the place where your your lord, be that an abbot, a bishop, even potentially the king or uh, some other aristocratic figure, would be and you'd basically tell them all what's what and they'd need to recognise formally that they now accept the new status quo. And you actually sometimes do have documents that are written down in the margin of a gospel book or something like that saying, and, you know, Athelnoth will now bring, you know, 20 sheep or something like that. And you'd only write something like that down if it had changed if it mattered in some particular context at that moment. And so the whole point is writing it down to try and specify that that's now the state of play. The other way in which a a landlord might impose a new plan like this is if he's got uh, what they'd often call a reeve, a local agent, sort of like a, a kind of bailiff, a guy who'd be there on the ground to deal with the locals. And this person would go and basically tell the peasants that now they have to do things differently. Now they've got to provide cash instead of food, or they've got to do various other things instead of how it used to be. Uh, the, the, the assumption is that originally there was a combination just of labour and food that was owed to the landlord. And you can see this in the context of late Anglo-Saxon, in this wonderful set of documents that actually lay down how things work on individual estates from the perspective of these reeves, basically them saying what their current job description is. And there's even one which is all about the ways in which the groups on the states vary. 
So you'll have some people who belong to this category, some who belong to another category, and they all have different rights and responsibilities. And again, this is written apparently from the perspective of one of these reeves, somebody who's got to juggle all of these different groups on the land that's charged to him. Are you speaking about the Hydage records? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Oh. Yeah, yeah. This is this is quite similar to this. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So for this transition, uh, it's it's primarily a top-down affair, but everybody knows what the value of their their goods are when they're trading a market or when they're trading with their neighbors or when they're providing food rent and they're said they're they're told they have to provide this many bales of hay or whatever. Yeah. But a moneyed economy is a lot more uh, abstract, right? Mm-hmm. There's a value to coins, but coins get debased very easily. There's yes. a lot of problems that, that arise. And so during that transition to a currency, mm-hmm. how would you push the lower orders or how would you push the use of that currency and the trust of the the currency upon the population? Well, that's a very, very good question. The short answer, I think, is that it comes, well, as you said, from the top. It's to do with kings, bishops, other powerful people sending out these, these little bits of gold. And the way you start off by doing this, theoretically, is you just give out bits of bits of anything. They don't need to be gold. They could just be bits of leather, bits of wood, bits of bits of plastic if it modern times. And the whole point is that these are essentially tokens. They're a guarantee that this is worth so much and that I will honour it. I, the king, I, whoever else. An extension of that is that you then back up that claim. You provide some support to it by making those little chits, tokens, whatever you want to call them, made out of gold or silver. So it's, it's two things. It's on the one hand, you're stamping it, making it into a coin to provide that, that link to a source of authority. And then the gold or the silver is investing that object that you create with value that it carries on its own. Now, those two factors of a coin might or might not coincide exactly. In actual fact, you probably don't want them to coincide exactly, because if your coin was worth more in terms of gold than you, the king, had said it's worth, they would all be melted down. Right. And this does happen at various points in history. It happened relatively recently in in Britain with silver, for instance. But in the context of the Anglo-Saxon England, more often than not, it was the opposite, that coins were probably told, kings probably told the people that coins were worth rather more than they contained in terms of gold and silver. And in a really extreme situation, they might contain virtually no gold or silver whatsoever. Well, and that leads up to my next question, which is, so this transition from a food rent, uh, which is uh, concrete, and there's an actual value there, to currency, which is abstract, how does that impact wealth inequality and wealth concentration towards the royalty? Well, no, you're absolutely right. It's not necessarily solely benefiting the landing class. I mean, first of all, if you as a, a an up-and-coming Anglo-Saxon landowner have decided that you want to get cash out of your peasants instead of instead of food. First of all, why do you want this? Well, chances are that it gives you greater flexibility. It means that you can buy other stuff you want. It means you can engage in the market, buy luxuries, do all sorts of things like that. But the key thing is that by requiring your tenants to pay in cash, they've got to have some way of getting it. And they will presumably be getting it by then taking their food and selling it. So that means you've got to have a market, you've got to have all kinds of other mechanisms in place for any economy of that sort to function. And you can see this coming online in England in the course of the 7th and 8th centuries especially, not so much from the text. I mean, as you say, the text focused mostly on this 
where they say anything about this sort of business is focusing on this older series of expectations surrounding food renders and so forth. Laws of Ina, for example, which are quite detailed about what you'd expect out of an estate. And yet you see this remarkable multiplication of the currency, which you find so widely in such diverse places that it simply cannot be just a matter of solely the elite using it, especially once you get into the silver coinage, which is really, really enormous in terms of its its quantity and very widespread in its circulation. So is are we connecting them directly to the explosion of market towns around the same... Not necessarily towns, but markets. Or markets. Yes, yeah. This is an important, important point, actually. Towns don't necessarily produce all the coins or even house all the markets in this period. It's quite possible that some of these places where you would buy and sell would basically be meeting sites where you'd have... Like early Ipswich. Exactly, yeah. You'd have what we'd probably recognise as early fairs or something like that. Mm -hmm. And town is basically in the eye of the beholder that, you're quite right, Ipswich is a sort of proto-town that gradually grows into something that we'd see as a bit more urban, whereas there are loads of other places, hundreds of other places, in fact, that we know, usually from later sources, had been meeting places for shire a hundred a different unit perhaps but they might also have been venues for doing all sorts of other stuff including trade right with the rise of uh, trade places mm. like that we have records of of tolls and specifically tolls being uh credited or discounted for say bishops and things of yes London. that's right so were these these market sites controlled primarily by, say, a proto-bourgeois class, or, or were they functions of, a, of royal power? I think that, at the moment at least, the way they're usually interpreted is that they're serving the demand of local elites. They're serving land, landowners who are able to amass relatively large concentrations of wealth. But the people who are actually providing access to luxuries, to goods from further afield, the things that you couldn't just get around and about, were probably a kind of, I hesitate to say mercantile class, but they were people who were playing a larger role in trade. They might also have been farming, they might also have been doing other things, but they were also moving about, sometimes over long distances, to trade. And you can see that, for instance, in the vicinity of Ipswich, there are sites outside the town, further up the, the Devon Valley, where it looks like you had these proto almost proto-urban, proto-trading places, which were serving the local elite, and then gradually it's centralised into Ipswich. That, and so Ipswich becomes much bigger at the expense of these smaller sites. What that probably means is that a bigger, badder figure in the locality, quite possibly a king, has come in and tried to stipulate that these functions of trade and buying and selling have got to go on at a particular place so he can monitor it, profit from it, have easy access to it. And that's how you see places like Ipswich, uh, Lundenwick, probably Southampton, maybe York coming online in the course of the later 7th and then the 8th century. Do we have an idea of what that did for the local economy? Uh, was this a positive, negative, neutral? Well, that would probably depend on who you asked. Um, <laughs> if you asked some of these people who'd been doing very well out of these these smaller sort of local trading sites, then it was probably not a good thing. But if you were to ask perhaps the traders who were just looking for a bigger market and who were 
basically just out to do as well as they could, then one suspects they might have been happier because probably this this did serve to concentrate and enhance demand. There did remain good contacts with the countryside, but it was just that the actual, it looks like the actual manufacturing and trading was more focused. And with the rise of, of these central uh, trading sites, yeah. did that have any impact upon the use of currency? Did that spread currency? Or? Actually, it did. It did have a spread of currency. There was a very good study recently by a, by a colleague of mine from Oxford, which showed that actually, for all that the, the quantity of coins increases in the course of the 7th and 8th century very significantly. What's really interesting is that in the vicinity of these trading towns, it actually becomes more concentrated in the latter part of the period as the currency really explodes. So you've got more coins, but it looks like they're not percolating out into the immediate neighbourhoods of these towns in quite the same way as they had been beforehand. So it's actually quite a good demonstration of the, the impact that these, these steps were having on the local economy. That's really interesting. <laughs> If you don't mind, I'd like to uh, switch gears just a little bit. Let's let's uh, get a little bit more basic because uh, <laughs> I, I jumped yeah. right in. So can you run us through roughly how coins were created during this period? Absolutely. Um, the easiest way to think about it first is that there are really three major steps, phases to Anglo-Saxon coinage. Well, let's say four. The first is you don't basically have any at all for the first 200-odd years of the Anglo-Saxons being in in England. In the 5th and 6th centuries, they do continue to bring in very small numbers of coins from Europe. They do probably mostly use them in terms in context of ornamentation and for bullion rather than for, for trade. And it's really when we get to the end of the 6th and 7th century that we get into the first of these three proper chunks of Anglo-Saxon monetary history, which is where you have gold coinage, initially brought in from the Merovingian kingdoms in Gaul, but from the early 7th century, the Anglo-Saxons get in on the act themselves and make these early coins that are generally known as shillings, shillingus in Old English. Towards the end of the 7th century, probably around about 670 or thereabouts, for various reasons, they stop making coins out of gold and they switch to making silver. And for about 75 years thereafter, at least in southern England, they make these silver coins which are very small and very thick. They are actually quite similar in terms of their shape and size to the gold ones that came before. Now, these silver coins are pennies. They were already called pennies in the sources, as far as we can tell. Historically, they've often been called by, by modern scholars, shatters, um, singular shat, but it's quite likely that's not the term that was used for them in the 7th and 8th century. Now, in about 750 in southern England, we switch over to the, the last of these, these major sort of fundamental changes in the coinage, which is the institution of broad, thin silver pennies that name the king and name the money are as standard. Sometimes that had been done earlier on, but only occasionally. From thereafter, you've got a whole string of these broad silver pennies that name everyone from Offa to Alfred to Ethelred the Unready to Harold Godwinson and... They make a wonderful sort of rogues gallery of Anglo-Saxon history. So let's start with the uh, Schillingas. Because they are made out of gold, were these yep. primarily just something that the only the ultra-wealthy would have been utilizing? Uh, to a larger extent, yeah. There is some evidence, particularly from the Merovingian kingdom, that these things could be used on a limited scale by, by other people. There are occasionally stipulations that even these poor peasants had to pay you know, a gold coin for their rent or something like that. And it's, it's conceivable they did that in England too, but... 
you're absolutely right that by and large these must have been a coinage for wealthier people in society. It's probably a matter of degree. It's likely that many of the population would deal with them sometimes, but the frequency with which they with which you did so probably was highly, highly variable. The transition from the shatas, the silver pennies mm. that were thicker, mm. to these broad, thin pennies that typically indicate like Offa and everyone else. Yes. Why did that switch happen, if you know? Well, the short answer is there's no very obvious reason why they start making broader, thinner ones. It's quite possible that what they what they wanted to do was have these inscriptions, start giving you more information, and basically it's easier to get that extra information on if you've got more space to play with. <laughs> that said, they sometimes managed it perfectly well with the earlier coins, so it's, it's probably basically a matter of taste and fashion. Uh, we can see that probably the first place that starts moving in that direction is actually probably East Anglia, under this very, very obscure character called Bayona, who mm-hmm. is king there around 750. And then that that idea of making them thinner and flatter is expanded in the Frankish kingdom, and then it's copied from there by Offa in about 760. So it's kind of chain reaction. You've got you know, kings of Northumbria who start to put their names on coins. In East Anglia, they do that, but make them a bit flatter. The Franks make them flatter still, and then the Anglo-Saxons in the rest of England get it from there. Are there, are there any firm ideas of why all of a sudden you you have kings stamping their names and moneyers and locations being put onto these coins? Well, my view probably in terms of the kings starting to guarantee the coins is that this grows out of a period when the quality of the coins has started to become more variable. The amount of silver that's being put into them is no longer very consistent and often quite low. And that when... There is an effort beginning in Northumbria to try and make these coins more reliable and usually make the silver a bit better. One way of trying to convince people that these things are more reliable is for the kings to take a more direct, hands-on and explicit role in their production. And that's why you start getting the king's name on it. The money's name does a similar job, except instead of naming, as it were, just the, the guy who's overseeing the whole process for the whole kingdom, it's also naming the the individual, the specific source. Now, that might actually have been closer to the way earlier coins had worked. These don't always carry inscriptions, but when they do, they tend to name moneyers. But they're so diverse that in practice, it might have been the case that if you were in the know, you'd be able to spot that, aha, this funky-looking bird actually means this coin comes from... Athelstan of Ipswich, or something like that. That's fascinating. So it very well might have been a a function of expediency and efficiency rather than a demonstration of royal power. It certainly does that too, but I think in the immediate context of the 8th century, that was probably the the first concern. And then they realised, hang on a minute, we can use this to really go to town and advertise all these new features of kingship. And (laughs) they do, basically. In the case of Northumbria, it may well have been that we know from later times that minting is very concentrated, and that may have been why they didn't need money as names at first in Northumbria. It's all concentrated in possibly York. Right. Did you want to talk about how coins were made? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, when you were going to make some coins, you, you'd start off with your, your gold or your silver. The real technical expertise came in getting that gold or silver to the right alloy, and then getting the right amount of that metal into the coin. It's controlling the weight and controlling the fineness, which really, really requires knowledge and expertise. Getting your your image that goes on the coin to look pretty is relatively by the by. And it looks like that process of melting, remelting, adding things in was probably just done using 
typical metalworking equipment, you know, crucibles and the other sort of implements you would need to use to handle them. Uh, once you had your metal sorted out, there were various ways in which you could turn it into a coin. It looks like very early Anglo-Saxon coins, the, the shillings and so-called shatters, were made probably by making taking little droplet sort of uh, spits, you know, gobbets of metal, round gobbets of metal, and then you just hammer them between the two dies. You put one on top, one underneath, hit the top of the hammer, and out comes your coin. It looks like that was the method they used because these are quite inconsistent in terms of the shape that they end up with. So they're not always perfectly round. In fact, right. they're very rarely perfectly round. Right. Later on, it looks like they eventually end up using a system that requires something that's like a heavy-duty cookie cutter or pastry cutter. You would make your, your sheet of metal and then you would go over it with this sort of, uh, you know, punk-style cookie cutter and take out these little discs of gold or silver, usually silver by that point, which correspond to the the eventual shape and size that your coins will mm. have. And then you take those discs and you strike them, and that's how you end up with these consistently, more or less perfectly round, late Anglo-Saxon silver pennies. Around what era do those coins start appearing? Uh, it's hard to say for sure. Certainly they're using that method by the end of the 10th century, but they're already pretty consistently round when we go further back into the 10th and perhaps at some context, into the 10th century, perhaps even in some cases even earlier than that. How they did things in between is a bit murkier because they're more consistently round but not as consistent as the pastry cutter. So it may well be that they had a kind of adjusted blob system, as it were, where you would make your, what they, what they call a flan, the bit of metal that the coin is struck on first, and then you strike it afterwards. So you'd start off by making sure it's in pretty good shape, then you take it to the dies, and then you end up with your coin. Okay. So with regard to minting, yeah. when we identify mints, yes. if you have a die that's created in London, yes. but something is being minted in York, for example, or elsewhere, how do you distinguish where these coins are actually being minted if they're using the same die? Well... <laughs> Uh, this is how I spend a lot of my time actually trying to work out questions like that. Short answer is often you simply can't. Um, you just have to recognize the level of uncertainty that's acceptable to you and stop there. But broadly speaking, the criteria you use to try and distinguish coins from from others in terms of where they're made and when they're made is you look at, first of all, what they look like. And that involves going down to very fine details, not just is it is it a bird or is it a plane. It's got to be whether... For instance, the, the eyes or you know very, very minor details are executed in the same way because that can give you a clue to almost unconscious processes and decisions that are being used by, by the makers of these, these dies. And that can sometimes hint at different at the same individual being at work or different workshops and things like that. So you look at them very carefully, first of all. You compare physical features, how much they weigh, uh, how good is the silver... And then the third thing, the other major option you want open to you, is where have they been found? And this will involve looking at single finds and mapping those, plotting those. Plus, if you've got them, you'll look at hordes. And those are particularly helpful for working out chronology. You see which groups come together and which groups don't come together. And if you've got any that can be externally dated, then all the better. How does trade and, for example, Dane guilds mm -hmm. impact your assessment of location for coins? Because if you find coins in, say, uh, Staffordshire yes. after the arrival of the Great Heathen Army, yeah. it can be put there by 
a Viking warrior. So how, how do you source those coins at that point? Well, <clears throat> need to think about that one. Um, <laughs> Sorry. It's, no, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, I, if you go back in time and you look at scholarship from 40, 50 years ago, they're very blasé about saying that this hoard of coins was deposited because of this raid or this battle or something right. like that. That sort of approach is not as fashionable now. And first of all, people are a lot more hesitant just to draw connections with particular events in any way, shape or form. And you've got to accept a certain degree of flexibility. You know, there could be lots of reasons why you get a group of coins that come from an unusual area found in a particular place. And unless there is something really unusual about that assemblage of coins, it's very dangerous to say specifically it's it's Danegeld, mm. it's it's anything else. Now, let's not say these aren't. Mm. And this is where looking very carefully at the profile of mints comes in. And this has been done very well in the context of groups of Anglo-Saxon coins that have been found in Scandinavia. What you occasionally see there are whole parcels of coins which will all be made from the same dyes in you know, Lidford in Devon or something like that. And even having somewhere like a very small mint, such as Lidford, overrepresented, also suggests there's something weird going on. It suggests you've got a more direct link between that particular hoard and that particular place in England. Fewer sort of opportunities for the currency to break up in between. Now, depending on whom you ask, that's more likely to mean Danegeld, or it's more likely to mean trade. And the really frustrating thing is it could be either. And my view is that, in actual fact, once Danegeld had been paid, there were any number of ways in which that could money could go. And what this means in practice is that the physical effects of trade and Danegeld would be very much the same. And the crossover between the two would be enormous. Very often, these, these parcels of money would be divvied out among the Vikings, and we know explicitly that lots of them would then go off and buy land in England, they would stay on working for Canutes, they would go off and uh, sell off stuff in Flanders on the way home. There are all kinds of ways in which these divisions of cash could go in different directions, recombine, or do all sorts of different things. In other words, Danegeld is important, but it's important because of how it enriches lots of other things, as well as just money moving around in large quantities for one purpose. Now, there's one hoard I've been working a lot on recently, which is a little bit earlier than Danegeld, but it's very unusual. It was found in November 1883 underneath the House of the Vestal Virgins in Rome. And in the course of excavations, they came down, they discovered this hoard, they plucked it out. Unfortunately, they destroyed the archaeologists destroyed virtually all of the contextual information, so we don't know as much about this as we'd like. But the hoards are still preserved in a museum in Rome, and they consist of about 830 mostly Anglo-Saxon coins. But the really exceptional thing that was found with them is a pair of silver, what are called hooked tags, fasteners, that were originally on the bag the coins were contained in. And these have the name of the person for whom the hoard was intended as a gift inscribed on them. And it was intended as a gift for Pope Marinus II. And this is, to my knowledge, completely unique. There are no other medieval hoards from anywhere in Europe, as I've come across, which have a kind of label saying what or whom they were for on it. So it's really, really interesting, and it lets you date the hoard quite precisely. In fact, the date is doubly strong because you've got this, this inscription. It matches up perfectly with the date of the coins, which run down to the reign of King Edmund, uh, who's ruler from 939 to 946, and Marius II was pope from 942 to 46. Even better than that, within the Anglo-Saxon coins, there's a strong concentration of material from London, 
among the most recent chunk of the hoard. You've got, for instance, in one case, a run of, I think it's 11 coins from exactly the same dies. And so London at that stage is, it's important, but it's not any more important than places like Canterbury, Winchester, Chester, and so forth. It's one of several significant places. So there is something weird about that. And we know that the Bishop of London went on a trip to Italy at some point in the span when this horde comes from, a character called Theodred. Now, obviously it doesn't have Theodred's name on the inscription. We don't even specifically that Theodred got to Rome, but it's entirely possible. And he's certainly the right kind of person that would have been going to Rome, bringing cash for a donation, and then might have expected to have an audience with the Pope when he got there. Was, was that temple anywhere near the Scala Saxonum? No, actually it wasn't. It's, it's a little bit surprising, really. It's more or less, I wouldn't go as far as the middle of nowhere. No, it was the middle of nowhere in Rome, but it's in the Forum. And the Forum is more or less in the centre of the city, whereas the Scala Saxonum is, is closer to the Vatican, which is further to the west. Okay, we're going to pause here real quick because Jamie and Rory just kind of went off on a tear and left us all behind. The Scala Saxonum was a sort of hostel and a diplomatic center for Anglo-Saxon officials who were on state or church business. And it was also a place where Anglo-Saxon pilgrims would come and hang out if they're down there in Rome on spiritual business. So if you were in Rome and you were an Anglo-Saxon, you were probably staying in the Scala Saxonum area that was on Vatican Hill. We think this area was built by King Inna of Wessex in the 7th century. Now that we're clear on what that was, we'll go back to the talk. So there's not really any major monument particularly close to this hoard at all. That could be part of the point. You're not going to bury it, you know, in your own backyard, as it were. But this is one of the features of it that we wish we could say more about what the the, the immediate local context of it was. Yeah, there are church, there are churches nearby. Wow. Cool. Yeah, yeah that's that's yeah, that's quite. a great mystery. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really good. Um, there's no evidence for exactly why it was concealed, or what, more importantly, why it wasn't recovered. Because you don't, you know, rock up in Rome, nice big bag of silver, and then you bury it. You know, presumably you'd do that if there's some kind of uncertainty, some kind right. of... Disruption. Exactly. Yeah. And we, I mean, I, I've worked on this with a, a, a great colleague of mine, Francesca Tinti, and, and we spent a long time looking through everything we could find about Rome in the 940s. And there's no obvious occasion that could have could have been the cause of so this. There's no papal intrigue, no one's, no, no mobs trying to tear out tongues of popes Exactly. No, I mean, this is, <laughs> it's, it's a little bit... Initially, we were almost surprised by this. One thinks of 10th century Rome as quite a rough and tumble place, but in actual fact, the 940s are relatively quiet, at least based on what we have in surviving sources, which may or may not be representative. So this might well mean that our putative Bishop Theodred comes in and has some kind of very personalised problem, or the other possibility is that he does give it to the Pope, and then something happens to, to the Pope's messenger, to the Pope himself. You know, Any number of things could happen to being that this thing ends up in the ground without being recovered. Talking more about how coins can can illuminate dark periods of history. Yeah. The mercy and supremacy. Absolutely. We know pretty much nothing about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we know we know a lot about Wessex because we have Asser and the Chronicle. How do coins fit into illuminating probably one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful, kingdom of the Heptarchy for what, a solid hundred years, and yet we know almost nothing about it? Well, I think they're they're very important, and they're very important in in two ways. First of all, in the earlier chunk of the the sort of half the Mercian supremacy, uh, the age of Athelbald and the kings immediately before him, they're almost negative evidence because that's the era of this highly diverse early 
penny coinage, those are called shatters, when you've got huge variety, huge diversity in the coins. There's no unified Mercian currency. There are no coins in the names of any of these kings. So it shows how, for all that these Mercian rulers are very powerful, and they're inserting themselves into all kinds of important aspects of life, including trade, uh, tolls in London, and so forth. They're just not, at least explicitly, taking taking the coinage in hand. That's not to say they had no involvement. Some of these coins may have been introduced by the king, but there's not at that stage an impetus or a desire actually to advertise as that the king is doing this. And it's quite likely that many of them don't really have much involvement with the king at all. So it shows how the Mercian supremacy is jolly important, but there are ways in which it has limits. Then if we fast forward to the time of offer, you see things swing quite hard in the opposite direction. Under offer, you start getting these coins in the name of the king. You start to have the king apparently exercising a fairly exclusive right mm-hmm. over the manufacture of coinage, probably to a significantly reduced number of places in which they're being made, and explicit naming of the characters who are producing them, who then work with the king. And under offer, this coinage becomes a really, really important resource for historians because, as you quite rightly said, we don't know nearly as much about the Mercian supremacy as we would like. And most of what we do know comes from sources written outside the area of the Mercian supremacy itself. So it comes from the letters of Alcuin, um, other sources like that. So for what the Mercians themselves are doing, we're dependent mostly on the charters, which again are rather complicated in terms of their interpretation and and spread, and then the coinage. And the coinage, again, is not necessarily a matter of offer wandering into these various moneyers workshops and saying, I want my hair like this today, or something like that. <laughs> it's more variable. But it shows us another view, another way in which we can approach the way these kings are demonstrating their power, and how that power is then being understood in places like London and Canterbury, where these coins are made. So like the charters, it shows us really well how the centre, the king himself, is interacting with these other locations, these other significant centres of power and trade within the Mercian supremacy. Okay, speaking about Afo, yeah. I've got a couple of fun questions for you. First, since you've spent so much time studying these coins, and I've spent more time than I'd like to say looking at coins of this period, including coins of Afa. He looks like he's got a French braid. What is going yeah, on with his hair? That's that's pretty fantastic, isn't it? Yes, Afa's <laughs> Afa's funky hair. Um, yeah, I mean, well, we can't rule out the possibility that that was the do to have when you were strutting your stuff down the high street of Tamworth in the seven eighties or thereabouts. We we don't know for sure, but. It's more likely that what they're thinking of is the connotations that representations of that hairstyle have. And there's actually quite a good tradition of this, which has been written about very well by, by Anna Gannon, who's an art historian. And this is this has got very deep roots. It goes right back to Greek and Roman era representations of gods and demigods who had this wonderful tousled flowing hair. And this links the idea that if you were divine and great and so forth then eventually you would go rushing off up to heaven and as you did the wind would whistle through your hair and make it cool and wavy and this was gradually then applied to other great divine figures like angels certain important figures in in uh, in the bible as christian and classical pre-christian art came together and eventually this ended up settling perhaps surprisingly on the figure of king david the biblical king david was quite often represented with this flowing hair which has got these these longer this longer history behind it and 
the theory is that Offer and his fluffy hair is meant to be a way of saying that Offer has some of the attributes of the biblical King David. That's fascinating. Yeah. And David was one of the favourite figures, one of the favourite touchstones, models for kingship in the 8th century. We know Charlemagne modelled himself on David. He was even called David sometimes. And it's entirely in keeping with the kind of regime that we know Offer exercised. It was very learned. There was a lot of access to biblical scholarship. And there was probably a great deal of thought and artistic expression going on behind the scenes that we now know little about. Who modeled themselves uh, after, uh, after David first? Because Offa and Charlemagne seem to be jockeying for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think on the evidence, on the basis of the evidence we've got, it's very easy to say my suspicion would be Charlemagne in this case. But it's the, the coins of Offa cannot be dated. And w- one would need to go back and check very carefully about when Charlemagne starts to be named named David. Right. Um, but Charlemagne is named David in the circle of, of Alcuin um, and the writers of Alcuin's letters. So there is already an Anglo-Saxon connection right. there, um, albeit to Northumbria. So it's even money, basically. It needs more, <laughs> needs more time and effort. Yeah. I will have people shouting at me if I don't ask you about Office Coin. Everybody <laughs> wants to know about Office Coin. But the, the gold one, the DR. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that one is pretty fantastic. I mean, so, if, if I did have to pin down a single favorite... Anglo-Saxon coin, that would probably be it. So what is your... To catch people up, just in case they're not sure what I'm uh, I'm referring to, uh, this coin has uh, kind of mangled Arabic inscription around the edges. Yes. Not too badly mangled, you can't read it, though. Right. But but it's it's, it's not quite right, so... But it's it's intended to say there is is no god but one, and Muhammad is his prophet, as I recall. Plus various specifics about where it's made and stuff. Right. What is your opinion of what that coin means? Well... My view is that it fits very well into the the way in which gold coinage is being revived and used in the later 8th century. Um, As we said before, you've got these gold shillings in the 7th century, which are the standard currency at the time. Then gold goes away for about 100 years, and it seems relatively rarely to have been used for coins. But in the time of offer, it's starting to pick up again. And the first context in which it picks up is use of Arabic and Byzantine gold coins in Western Europe. This is something that probably starts in Italy in the 770s. And then you can see it leapfrogging to England and eventually filling in the gaps in between. We know this is because England and Italy have got very close ties. These things are probably, although there's a bit of debate about this, probably known as mancuses, mancosus in Latin. Now, Offer's gold coin is basically modelled on what you would expect a respectable gold piece circulating in the 8th century to look like. The rather paradoxical thing about this is that, as you quite rightly said, the inscription is, is it's an Islamic religious inscription. It expresses that there is no God but, but no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. This coin was, prob- was possibly made under offer for donation to the Pope despite this religious content. And we know this because there's a letter written from Pope Leo III to Offa's successor, Kernwulf. And in this letter, the Pope suggests that it might be a lovely idea if he continue Offa's practice of sending 365 gold mancuses to Rome every year um, for various purposes, including keeping the lights on. And if mancus meant these Arabic coins, then it could well be that the Offa dinar was one of such a, a shipment of coin. 
And this is supported by the, the fact that the coin first surfaces in Rome in the 1840s when it's bought by a French diplomat there. We don't know for sure if it was found in Rome, but it, it could have been, and that's where it was first sold. And the fact that the inscription, the Latin inscription, says Offer Rex, uh, is just a way of advertising Offer's authority without diminishing the, the recognisability of an Arabic gold dinar. That's what they were looking for. They weren't particularly bothered about what these inscriptions said. It was the fact that that's what made them reliable. That's what told people that this was a reliable gold piece. Okay. It's very unlikely that anyone could actually read what they said. Right. Which is much for the uh, very much to offer's benefit, I suspect, in this context. Unless he really wanted to send a message to the Pope. Uh. <laughs> but there are, actually, there are actually quite a few coins that are, are imitations made in Western Europe of Arabic dinars, but which don't have that inscription on them. So it's it's part of a bigger story. I recall reading somewhere, I can't remember where now, that it may have originated in Spain. No, I think that it's it's unlikely to have a direct Spanish connection. I mean, obviously Spain, a large part of Spain at this stage, is under, under Muslim control. But at that point in the later 8th century, they're not making much gold coin coinage. They're making silver, and the silver is percolating into southern southern France, you can draw a quite interesting map of how these things circulate in the south of the south of Gaul. And there are one or two pieces known from England. But it looks like gold coinage, Arabic gold coinage in this period, is a basically a Mediterranean phenomenon which is then filtering into Italy and further north from Italy. And it looks like the centre of this, this Western imitation of dinars is probably somewhere in the North Italian Alps region. And in fact, a lot of them are also of the very same year. They're all of the year, I think it's 100 and... It translates to, I think, 773 or 480. I think it's 157 after the Hedra. And this is true of some of the originals which have been found, but it's also true of Offers D9. It's true of lots of the imitations. And even some of the ones which don't say 157 may well have originally said 157, and someone's just copied the Arabic role. So what was going on during that period that led well, to the spread? There's no... To my knowledge, there's no, you know, the sort of mass exodus of envoys or anything like that in 157. What seems more likely to happen is that perhaps a few coins got into the right hands, and then those those coins are taken as the model for lots and lots of these imitations. And it may well be that Offer's coin is actually an imitation of an imitation. Hmm. It may not be bottled on an, an original Arabic coin. It could be based on one of these from... The, the Carolingian Empire, which was just trying to, to look like an Arabic coin. And it's the same in terms of quality, more or less. They're just trying to make them look the part. By having this inscription around the edge and, yes. and having it in the dinar style, it's a bit like having Offer Rex on there or the name of the yeah. money or It's just proof of this has the authority to have the value that we say it has. That's right. I think so. Yes, in this case, it's, it's a slightly unusual implementation of it because the whole point is for it to look like a regular dinar, and adding offer is probably, I suspect, a case of demonstrating who's boss, right. saying who's boss, <laughs> um, you know, adding offer into this this already well established tradition of gold coinage. Mm -hmm. So let's let's actually because we never we never spoke about money ears. Sure. Uh, can you give us the really basic rundown of who money ears are and how they operate? What yeah, they do? Yeah, of course. Moneyers are characters who make coins, basically. Uh, monetarius in Latin, uh, munitera in Old English. And it reflects the way Anglo-Saxon coinage worked for 
most of its history, which seems to have been very personalised. It was all about the guy who actually did the job. And it looks like these characters would have probably done the whole business from uh, receiving your money and then melting it down, turning it into another coin, then giving it back to you. So they're combining exchanger and sort of practical manufacturer all into one into one position. And you can trace these figures from already in the period of the gold coinage in the 7th century, when you occasionally get money as names on Anglo-Saxon pieces. And they stem from uh, an organisation of coinage in the Merovingian kingdom, which is also based very much on on these moneyers who would move around between a huge number of often quite local minting sites across across Francia. In later times, we know that these moneyers were sometimes quite rich, quite locally important individuals. At the time of Doomsday Book, for example, in Lincoln and in York, there are various moneyers who can be pinned down among the prominent citizens of those cities. In law codes, moneyers are sometimes implied to have been characters who've got some subordinates working for them. So they're not necessarily the ones who are actually doing the hammer and tongs work, but they're the ones who take responsibility and oversee the operation. There's even a remarkable document which was written in the early 12th century in Winchester, which is based on earlier surveys, including one from before the Norman Conquest. And in this survey, you get all kinds of details about the moneyers of Winchester in probably the 1050s. You hear about where they had their houses, where they had their workshops, all in a row on the high street. And it's a great reflection of just how this would work within a specific town. So to begin with, uh, yep. you mentioned that they were essentially currency exchangers. So they would yes. receive money and then melt it down. So how exactly did that work? Uh, was it a, a case of, of you got coins out of, say, Francia, mm. you weren't sure what the value of it was, you melt it down and separate, and then recast it? Or how, how does that all work? Well, it's not something which is discussed explicitly in many of the, the sources that we've got, unfortunately. It's, it's left a little bit opaque. Most likely how it would work is somebody would turn up, as you say, from Francia with some silver, some gold, and they would go to London, go to Canterbury, and present it to the money. And now this all implies that you've got some kind of rule in place, a law in place that you cannot use foreign coin. And in the early Anglo-Saxon period, that apparently didn't exist. There was a bit more flexibility about what money you would use, which implies that there were other incentives to take cash or indeed silver in other forms, objects and so forth, to your money and have it melted down. That might well be money was offered a better deal, that there was a premium on coin. Various things could have been in place. But from the time of offer, it looks like there was an expectation that the coinage in circulation would be offers coinage. It would be English pennies made by Offa's moneyers. And did that, starting after Offa, was that the standard going forward? Yes, it was. Yes, it looks like there were, I mean, some foreign coins did come in and gold coinage, because it's so valuable and so high profile in its in its usage, it worked a bit differently. But for the bulk of the silver currency, it looked like, yes, it was a matter of just, just using local Anglo-Saxon coinage, basically. And how were these moneyers paid? Probably they would take a cut of the, the silver that they melted down. But the other thing to highlight is that most of them probably weren't full-time moneyers. They were probably first and foremost goldsmiths working with precious metal 
to do all sorts of things with it as well as making coin. And this is something that's made very explicit in that Winchester survey. A lot of these characters have names that are the same as the moneyers on the coins, and yet they're described as goldsmith. Now, were the moneyers the ones who created the dyes, the things that were used to stamp out these coins, or, or were those created by an official of the court or something? That, that varies depending on time and place. Especially in the earlier period, it may well have been that the moneyers did make their own dyes, and in the later period, when things were going horribly pear-shaped, the moneyers might sometimes have to make their own dyes. But by the time you're into the certainly the 9th century and even the late 8th century with offer, you can see that there are... Characters usually referred to as die cutters by, by numismatists who are responsible for supplying many moneyers. Now, we don't actually know very much at all about who or where most of these characters were based. You can do some work with the style of coins that are being made at various mints to pin down in a very general way where some of these things were being produced. But that's not quite the same as saying they come from this particular town or that particular craftsman. Mm. The only source we have that tells us anything explicit about this is Doomsday Book, which says that in the time of King Edward, certain moneyers would go to London to collect their dyes. Mm. And that ties up with what we see by the very late Anglo-Saxon period, which is that by and large, the standard is very, sorry, the style is very standardised across the whole kingdom which suggests exactly this, that they're going to one particular place to get the dyes from all over the country. Okay, so we have people, starting with Offa, being required by law to melt down their money. Yes. We have numerous moments throughout the Anglo-Saxon era and before, during Roman times, of massive debasement of the currency. Yes. Was it the moneyers who were doing that, or were there counterfeit dyes running around? And Well, it looks like debasement consisted of two things really first of all there's what you might call manipulation rather than debasement and this is this is not necessarily such a bad thing it's a little bit like quantitative easing in modern terms and it's basically stretching the coinage so that you're getting more than the pure silver would give you and in actual fact that's completely standard it's very unusual to get completely pure silver coinage in any part of the middle ages or even modern times that's because silver on its own is relatively soft You've got to include a small amount of copper, and which serves to harden it, and there will also be trace elements. There'll usually even be a small amount of gold in most silver coins, because it's very, very hard to get rid of completely. So you have that basic sort of setup of silver, pretty good silver, with a small amount of copper. You might increase that amount of copper if there's not much silver in supply, but doing so in a way that's open and known and controlled is probably not debasement as it would have been understood at the time. Debasement, as they were really worried about, and as you see law codes from late Anglo-Saxon England and the Frankish Kingdom really get into a tizzy about, was basically the same as what you described in terms of counterfeiting. It was people going off into the woods with fake dyes, with old dyes that they weren't meant to have, and making coins that were basically just pure copper or iron with a veneer of silver on the outside to, to deceive people. Uh, and this is something I've been working on recently, This, this, these different views of debasement that there were. And this idea of debasement as a, a sort of horror, something that was really, really dreadful in rhetorical terms, without usually being very specific about what that means, is connected with the idea that goes right back to very early Christian literature of coinage being a sort of metaphor for the soul. And you examine a coin in the same way as God examines your soul to see how good it is and if it's going to get into heaven or if it's going to pass muster with the banker or the trader who's getting it. And so gradually this idea that, that coinage is a, a sort of symbol for what's going on inside is kind of reversed. 
And so what's going on the outside with the coin is a symbol for what's going on in the moral heart of your kingdom. And so that's why kings are really, really fearful about dodgy stuff happening with the coinage, but not very specific about what that dodgy stuff will be. It's remarkably American, actually. It sounds like Protestant <laughs> yeah, capitalism. Like yeah. <laughs> Matters of the soul aside, uh, <laughs> what impact would would that debasement have upon the economy? Do we see the effects, and what do that what does that look like? Well, I think yes, there would have been impact on the economy, and even sort of quantitative easel, easing style debasement would eventually have had an impact, depending on how hard and far you pushed it. Probably prices would go up. The buying power of individual coins would go down, those two things being very closely related. What we see in practice is that the number of coins that are being used and lost increases significantly during some of these phases of severe debasement. The most famous example is Northumbria in the 9th century. Uh, Northumbria is very early to get into having its own royal coinage, it has one from the first half of the 8th century probably, but becomes very idiosyncratic. It doesn't adopt that broad, thin format of coin until the Vikings take over. And so you still have small, thick ones right down until the, the 860s and 870s. And from around about, probably about the 820s, 830s, these contain virtually no silver. In fact, at, towards the end of the coinage, they contain no silver whatsoever. They're basically a base metal coinage. And these are known in huge numbers from a number of big hordes, from... Uh, lots of single finds which have come up in modern times and it's very likely that this reflects difficulties with the coinage that it's no longer being used in quite the same way that one penny doesn't buy what it used to the really frustrating thing is that 9th century Northumbria is so obscure that we're not even sure of the dates of most of these kings some of the figures on the coins are even a little bit debatable in terms of who the hell they were and there's certainly nothing at all about prices or impact on the economy yeah, but you're still seeing evidence potentially of some sort of inflation. Exactly. I'd stress the potential there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very likely given what we see in terms of the multiplication of coins. Uh, having said that, it's not an uncontrolled process because you see that the coins which contain a little bit of silver continue to circulate alongside the ones that contain no silver for quite some time, which implies that they're probably being taken at similar face value. You know, there's no obvious, to the naked eye, the difference between these two coins is actually pretty small. So it looks like whoever is in charge, the king probably, is trying to get people to use these in a coherent, sensible way. But without destroying the economy in the process. Yes, that's right. Yes. And that that leads into, because we, we see reformations of, of, of currency over and over and over again. Yes. What sort of chaos would this cause in the market and just in general life if... You think you've you've got a pretty good nest egg. You think you're going to be okay, and all of a sudden it's it's uh, a bunch of wooden nickels. Like, do we have any indication of what that looked like? Um, it's quite likely that it was a huge pain um, for people, and that there were probably quite severe laws in place for people who were no longer using the proper coinage. We know, in fact, what these were from Anglo-Saxon and some very similar Carolingian legislation. They did have laws in place. They did have incentives to try and discourage people from using old coinage. That said, remember that these are still silver pennies. So it's quite likely that if people did have a nest egg, they wouldn't quite turn into nothing. They'd turn into into silver that you could still exchange, albeit probably not for as good a rate. Right. So going back to these moneyers, what did their workshops look like? You, you mentioned that mm. they were probably goldsmiths, but can you give us kind of a, a picture? 
I can do my best. The best, the best one we know about comes from York, where it was excavated in the 1970s as part of the Coppergate excavations. And in York, what they found was a series of tenements which were inhabited by people doing all kinds of different crafts and trades. One of them was inhabited by somebody who was making coins and probably doing various other things with metal as well. And the interesting thing is that in terms of how it compares with the other buildings around it, there's nothing particularly distinctive. It's just a house. It's just a tenement. It just happens to have been one where probably a Munio was based. And we know this because there were dyes found there, there were various other bits of paraphernalia associated with metalworking, and it, it reflects what we see in these Winchester documents, that the Munios were just living in towns, doing their business alongside lots of other craftsmen and traders as part of the urban community. So currently in the show, we're talking mm. about Alfred. And one of the nice things about coinage during the period of the Heptarchy is mm. it helps us identify kings and and sometimes queens. Because as I recall, uh, Office Queen was... Uh, Cunithrith. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. But... Starting around Alfred, you start to see that uh, it seems like that starts mm. to come to an end, and you end up like you end up with that 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 strange moment where Chowulf the second mm. and Alfred are on the same coin, even though he's so a, the two emperors' coins. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. Even though he's a foolish king's thing, <laughs> and uh, so how do the appearance of those coins and then later just the the uniform coins? impact the study of, of numismatics and teasing out history via coins? Well, I think the immediate context for the West Saxon and Mercian coinages coming together is political alliance between the two and a sort of pragmatic adoption of the same coinage on the part of both kingdoms. So they'd actually been using the same style of coins for a good five to ten years before you get Cheowulf II coming along. So you can see coins of some of Alfred's earlier brothers, which are already blending Mercian and West Saxon together. They're using the same design, similar weight and fineness and so forth. So there's a, a strong background to it. And Alfred is politically overshadowing Mercia already, probably even in the time of Cheowulf. Uh, you can see this in part from the coins, where at London, Alfred is probably being recognised and named as king, even while Cheowulf is still around. Thereafter, the impact of this this gradual sort of monopolization of West Saxon coinage goes hand in hand with the advancement of West Saxon come Mercian slash sort of combined Anglo-Saxon power over the course of the 10th century. So as they take over areas in the Midlands, East Anglia, Northumbria, they impose ways of doing things that are familiar from from back home, including the way you make coins, who you name on coins. And so it's to do with political expansion. It's not as if they didn't have coins already in those back sure. areas, they certainly did, but you see sometimes even the same money as carrying on, but now making coins for the new dynasty. So it provides us a, uh, a concrete way of seeing the speed of, of West Saxon advancement up through the Midlands. That's right, yeah, a very tangible expression of what that conquest actually means on the ground. Um, the other thing that that came to mind as I was uh, I was reading your book actually was the economic impact of hack metal. When you have yes. uh, the great heathen army come in, you've got all of these these Danegels that are being demanded. Mm -hmm. There's a proliferation of hack metal. How does that interface with the moneyed economy, and how does it affect it? Well. Hack metal is a term which is used to refer to gold, but more often silver, which is 
used from an economic perspective, but in uncoined form. So you would take uh, an arm ring or a bracelet or something like that, and you would, as the name implies, hack it up, cut it up, and then treat those little bits of silver as, as a form of currency as a, or as a storage of wealth. And so you see in basically places that were associated with the Vikings, all kinds of examples of how this would pan out in practice. You see that some coins are treated basically just as conveniently round bits of silver, and they're chopped up and tested in just the same way as you would any other piece of metal. Hack silver is potentially rather more versatile than coinage is, because you aren't as worried about this this risk of debasement and your, your silver losing its value, uh, you can also carry around very large amounts of money in relatively more convenient form. It's much easier to carry one big arm ring or one big brooch than it is to carry potentially thousands of equivalent coins. So it's it's got a lot going for it. The problem is when you get right down to very low value currency. Um, the, the extreme form of this is what's known as liquid silver in parts of the Baltic, which is where you end up with tiny, tiny pieces of hack silver, which are literally less than about 0.1 of a gram in weight. <laughs> so getting on for silver dust, it's not the most practical way of proceeding, but it's even better than coins. You can handle really tiny sums of, well, tiny exchanges using these bits of silver. You just need to do it with tweezers. <laughs> Not lose it between the floorboards. Yeah, yeah quite. <laughs> Now you'd have really good bags. It's a silly point, but you know all of these things, even coins, presume that you've got reliable, decent ways of carrying them around without losing them. Now, with something like that, with with hack metal, yeah. uh, naturally you don't have to worry about the creation of of alloys. It, so obviously you don't need to worry about moneyers or exchanges or anything along those lines. We're assuming that's the assumption. No, yeah. well you're yeah. right. Actually, it's not as if you stop worrying about the quality of your silver. You're just checking it more uh, more frequently. I mean, this is this is the the payoff with a, a hack metal system is that you've got to be quite good at handling silver. You've got to be good at estimating how much you've got to cut off to get a various weight. You've also probably got to be quite used to these various on-the-spot checks you would use to ascertain how good the silver is. So you see lots of cases of little cuts, little nicks, bits cut off, um, potentially even bite marks. To see things. how soft it is. Yeah, or perhaps check to see whether there's just a kind of sheen of silver on the outside. Uh, it's very common, in fact, with Anglo-Saxon coins found in Scandinavia or in Viking context in England to see what are known as nicks or peck marks. Now, with the creation of, of money, the moneyer and the king or, or the, the local lord tend to get a cut for the creation of, of that money. If you have if you have essentially a black market with, with hack metal, yes. uh, how much does that diminish royal power economically? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it's a black market as such. I'd just say it's it's probably a recognition that the 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 currency, such as it was, was not within the king's remit. The king would certainly use it, he'd have a lot of it, but it's just a thing that people use in the same way as people would be using all sorts of other practical resources that were open to them. So it's a different way of approaching currency, I'd say. I mean, obviously, yeah. uh, for part of this, is it's going to be a factor of, oh, God, we've got a lot of Danes here. We need to give them money. <laughs> yes. Um, but do we also see it appearing as the result of just economic anxiety, like a distrust in, in the currency? You mean turning back to hack metal? Yes. Uh, well, we know that the Vikings sometimes specifically stipulate that you need to be paid in what they call their, according to their own measure or by their own weight, which probably means in purified silver in not necessarily coined form. So the Vikings were stipulating that this stuff be used, which presumably meant that the poor old Anglo-Saxons or whoever had to 
turn their coins or whatever else they had into purified silver. So you'd, you'd, as it were, be paying a premium. You'd turn over 12 pennies, which would then contain only 10 pennies worth of silver, according to what the Vikings thought. So then you had to try and find yet more to make up that difference. So it was bad news for people who were suddenly faced with kind of taking care of this gap between the face value of coinage and its its sort of bullion value in silver. Yeah. It's a really ugly exchange rate. It is indeed. And we know that in... I mean, this is something that's actually done as late as the 1080s, 1060s in Doomsday Book, where there are various ways of assessing value. And one of these is what's called um, burnt and weighed silver. And what this seems to mean is basically that. It's silver that's been purified. And this is a, a privilege that seems to be associated particularly with lands that belong to the king. And it means that people would have to pay a premium of possibly up to as much as 30% on the the face value of the money they gave. So it was bad news for uh, Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, we, we, we there's food rent. You have to uh, yeah. Sometimes you have to pay with grain or with, with mead. But do we see any other non-currency exchanges that are taking place other than hack metal. Well, you see that there's all sorts of... There are all sorts of other commodities being used. There's one great example in one of the the texts written by Bede in which he talks about how a piece of land is bought in return for a book, for Mm -hmm. instance. Um, But you also see plentiful use of gold and silver in uncoined form for these kinds of transactions. Uh, sometimes there, there might be a cup, it might be uh, ornamentation on a sword, could be lots of things. And this seems to be particularly common for people at the top of the food chain. Mm-hmm. Anglo-Saxon, in fact, the, the, the best known sector of the Anglo-Saxon economy is buying and selling land because we've got all these charters that refer to it, hundreds of them. And what's unusual about them is that they, first of all, have a very high proportion of gold and silver being used compared to parallels that you see elsewhere in Europe at the same time. And this seems to be because they're associated with people who are either very much part of the elite or people who are up and coming and trying to get established in the elite. And the way you did this apparently included using gold and silver wherever possible. And gold is quite overrepresented in these documents compared to what you see in terms of circulation. For just a ballpark figure, there are about, say, 20-odd gold coins, native and foreign, that have been found in later Anglo-Saxon, from the later 8th century onwards, compared to, let's say, several tens of thousands of silver... And yet, among these charters, which record buying and selling of land, it's almost 50-50 in terms of gold and silver. Silver is slightly preponderant, but not by much. So it's not its not a very representative segment of the economy, but we know an awful lot about it, and it's very, very charged with status and power, and right. people trying to show off they're doing things in the proper way. And this often means buying and selling with gold and silver, but quite often in objects and very often in ways that we simply can't tell because the units that we use for currency, shilling, pound, and so forth, could also be used of weight or value. Oh, right. The the gold coins that, that may or may not have been circulating, if it was in the upper echelons, large numbers of gold, what became of those coins? Were they melted down? Yeah, probably so. The likelihood is that these are being melted down and reused very frequently. And we know that these probably circulated relatively intensively and also when the chips were down and somebody needed to drum up extra cash you'd go go and melt down your your family silver or your family gold whatever it might be um 
there are several lovely examples in, for instance, the life of St. Athelwold in the end of the 10th century, from the end of the 10th century, in which they say that during a particularly nasty famine, he melts down some of the church ornaments to turn them into cash and feed the poor. Doesn't that strike you as, as slightly counterproductive, given the amount of work that goes into silverworking and goldworking, that the gold and silver would actually be worth more in its ornamentation form? I entirely agree with you, and I think yeah. these days most people would agree with you, but yeah. I think in this period there was just so much of this stuff in churches that mm. at times when you know, disaster was threatening and you were a good beneficent bishop or priest you saw the the or at least according to these hagiographers you saw the help you could do for your people as more important i mean this is this is part of a there's a very long tradition of clerics doing this that when disaster threatens or you know people are going to be sold into slavery or they're starving or something like that you basically get all the cash you can i mean it's the same as uh, a wealthy institution now that's in a real crisis would sell off a major painting right. or a wealthy family would sell off their artworks or something like that. I mean, they're hugely valuable, but when you're in a really dire situation, you're going to turn them into cash. Yeah. You call that liquefying assets. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It just feels a bit like, uh, like we, we need a fire. Let's burn the family painting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The family, yeah, the um, does yeah. Survive. So what role did the clergy, what, what role did, uh, ecclesiastical pressure and just, mm. uh, involvement in the in the economy were they minting their own coins uh were they setting monetary policy within their own territory because they had their own lands things like that well there are a couple of ways in which they could have could have been involved the first thing goes right back to what we talked about a while ago in terms of uh, rents and land ownership and so forth which is that the church owns a lot of land and we also know a lot about what the church did with its land compared to other kinds of landowner and in actual fact they're often at the forefront of processes of exploiting their land and doing various things with it which are designed to try and get more resources out of out of their property so they're pushing hard and we know a lot about how they're doing it so that's one side of it Uh, in terms of minting their own coins they would do that especially in the early anglo-saxon period uh, later on, it's very rare for bishops to still put their names on coins. Abbots don't really ever seem to have done it at all. But what we do know is that occasionally they'd have had access to the profits from individual moneyers. This is made explicit in, for instance, the laws of Athelstan, where he says at one stage that the Archbishop of Canterbury has two moneyers, and then the abbot of St. Augustine's Canterbury has one. Um, and you can see similar arrangements in other places. The last way in which the clergy and the church would be involved with coinage is that because bishops, abbots are very close to the king and involved in advising the king on what he should do, they would sometimes be able to directly guide him towards perhaps reforming the coinage, Mm. especially in these periods when there's great awareness of the, the responsibilities, the religious responsibilities that go with kingship. So, for instance, this very famous reform undertaken by King Edgar towards the end of his reign, which institutes standardised mint names, standardised design, standardised fineness all over the kingdom for the first time, comes at a point when these this, this ecclesiastical faction is in the ascendant, when we know that St. Athelwold, St. Dunstan are very close to the king, helping him make these decisions. And they're very keen on, especially Athelwold is very keen on uniformity everyone singing from the same hymn book. And so 
he's doing with the coinage, what you see him doing with monasteries, trying to get them all to to play ball in the same way. And it's all connected to this idea that your the money reflects the the moral. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the very best case Help. of this comes from the year. 1009, very probably the year 1009, uh, and we know from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle that this is when a, a big Viking army appears in August, comes into the southeast of England and raises hell for, for months, and Ethelred the Unready and his advisors take the sensible course of action, which is they retreat, and they go to Bath, and they fall back on their last line of defence, which is let God handle it. And so they send out this <laughs> decree that all the people in the kingdom are to go out and they have to march barefoot and they have to give arms, they have to pray for the salvation of the kingdom. And it looks like they probably enlist the coinage as part of this remarkable effort to try and get God on side. And temporarily, they produce the Agnus Dei coinage. They do away with an image of the king on the obverse and the regular cross on the reverse. And instead, you have the Lamb of God and the Holy Dove. (laughs) <laughs> on the obverse and reverse. And it's really remarkable. And there are only about 20 of them known um, compared to tens of thousands of most of the other types of Ethelred the Unready. And it speaks very well to this symbolic role that the coinage is playing. Moral panic. Precisely, <laughs> yes, yes. Because we've been covering the early Anglo-Saxon period in detail, we've, mm. we've, we've had some, some rough-and-tumble bishops and archbishops. Yes. Uh, usually, if your name is Wolfred, you're ready to raise <laughs> hell. Would the creation of currency have been a function of the acquisition of power and the demonstration of power for bishops and archbishops? There are some early Anglo-Saxon coins that seem to have been made under ecclesiastical authority, and there are very many which show evidence of religious awareness in their iconography. You, know, you have crosses, you have sometimes very, very elaborate, very symbolically sophisticated images which suggest that there may well have been clergy involved in deciding what they looked like. Um, on the whole, it looks like it was probably more an advisory role. The coins that you can say explicitly do come from ecclesiastical sources are relatively few. That's not to say some of the others weren't, but I think it's it's more likely that they that the bishops and abbots are involving themselves in a a much larger enterprise than taking responsibility for for most of it directly. That said, the the initial take-up of coins in England and its proliferation thereafter does seem to be tied very much to not necessarily just bishops, but to the the entry of the Anglo-Saxons into the the Christian club, as it were, Mm. that this is one of the trappings of Western European Christian civilization. So just in the same way as... Uh, King Ethelbert wants to marry a Frankish princess, right. so he and his contemporaries and their subordinates were probably interested in patronising the production of coinage in the same way as the Franks and other people in Western Europe did. Do you think there was some degree of, of confusion regarding the uh, the religious aspect of coinage? If, if you have if you have coinage associated with Rome, and yes. Rome is where God is centered. Because yes. you, you you had that that odd period in the conversion era where no one was entirely sure what was Christian and what wasn't. Yes. And so, is it the haircut? Is it the clothing? What do we need to do? Better do it all. You know? yes. <laughs> and, and so, do you think that coinage might have also been, been brought in as a religious ignorance, almost? Um, I'd, I'd see it more as trying to do things, keeping up with the Joneses, basically. <laughs> and Christianity is another part of the same package deal. 
Right. And different elements of this would come online in different ways and with different levels of awareness. Right. Um, so, for instance, early Anglo-Saxon gold coins are pretty weird in a lot of ways. They are they do not carry inscriptions, unlike virtually all their Merovingian contemporaries. You can't pin them down to a particular mint or money or king in most cases. So, just in the same way as Christianity is being taken up in a slightly fuzzy and flexible mm-hmm. way. The coinage is being taken up in a slightly fuzzy and flexible way. And it's being used alongside gold and silver and other forms too. All right. And usually at this point, I would say something along the lines of, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Naismith. And we'd sign off. However, like I said earlier, we were horrendously jet lagged. So we actually forgot to do that part. Well, we did it, but it was after we turned the mics off. So thank you very much for your time, Dr. Naismith. And now that I got seen the room, what did you think about this interview? I learned so much more about culture, I think, that I, I expected. One of my favorite parts, though, was this story about how we might have been able to tie a cache of coins to a very particular person who something horrible happened to. Maybe. Maybe in Rome, ditched the coins. We found them later, but like, what happened there? I, know. I can't get over that story. It's going to stay with me for the rest of my life. And just the moment that that must have been like for the people who found it of going into Rome. And finding this bag of coins and out comes Anglo-Saxon coins? Yeah, and and just wondering how this came about since there's no record of a major disruption. That's crazy. So either there's a, a disruption that we're not familiar with, or maybe there was something personal that happened. There could have been something really interesting in that particular like emissary's life. We just don't know. In my mind, the story is that the poor messenger boy just forgot the address and ditched the coins in the hope that no one would notice. Yeah, the other thing that really blew my mind was the fact that they were looking at coin purity as a function of morality. You know, like monetary policy could impact your relationship with the Almighty. Not just on what they were putting on the face of their coins, though it was certainly that, but also just the straight-up purity of the coins. As if it was some metaphor for the national soul. Yeah. This interview was fantastic. I really enjoyed myself. It was great sitting around this table and just talking to an expert who really knew everything about the subject and was so willing to share it with us with such enthusiasm. And I'm really happy that we were able to bring it to all of you. And if you appreciate Professor Naismith as much as we do for speaking with us, go ahead and follow him on Twitter. He's at Rory underscore Naismith. And we're going to have links on the show notes so you can find that. Also, we're going to provide links to his academia.edu site as well as his site on King's College. This actually lets his institution know that you know that he's out there, that you heard what he's talking about, and that you appreciate it. So... Go directly there, check in on what he's doing, what books he's releasing soon, and just show your support for scholars who are willing to take their time to put effort into public scholarship like this. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. We're at British Podcast. And you can join us on all the other social media channels. You can find links to all of them at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. All right, thanks for listening.